You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I hadn't attended a trial in heaven before. Not in person. They don't happen that often, for one thing. But wait, O oh wise angel, I hear you say, how can there be trials in heaven? Which is a perfectly good question, because once you've made it to the big happy, you should be golden, right? You've been judged righteous or you wouldn't get in, and after that you're doing the work of the highest. So how could you go wrong? Well, first of all, there's the whole free will thing. People and angels have to be free to make mistakes or else we live in a clockwork universe where everything's predetermined and perfect. Most of the time, heaven does seem like that. A flock of serene, shiny creatures living in complete harmony. A hive of buzzing happiness and shared purpose. But we all know that in nature, no matter how well any system works, there's always a couple of dumbass birds heading north for the winter when everyone else is flying south. Or one dipshit salmon belly surfing down the rapids, yelling, Woo, yeah, check me out, as he smacks face first into the more sensible fish swimming upstream to spawn. The fact that these unrepresentative idiots freeze and plummet from the sky or die without issue isn't the point. The point is free will. And apparently we angels are capable of poor impulse control, just like everybody else. Thus, there are trials in heaven and I was about to attend my first. Although attend is a bit misleading, I admit. It wasn't really my first because I'd been aware of several other trials. Here in the happy place, you can know about important things like that and even follow them closely without actually being present. Although it's hard to explain because, duh, it's another heaven thing. Imagine sitting in a crowded bar when the playoffs are on and a local team is involved. You don't have to stay glued to the screen to know what's going on in the game. You can pick up what's happening in a dozen different ways. And that's how I'd done my trial watching in the past. But this trial was going to be different, and so I had secured myself an excellent seat, front row center. The poor bastard angel on trial was going to face the full weight of heaven's judgment, and the entire shining city was full of anticipation. The Hall of Justice sparkled and throbbed with the light of watching angels. Angels who wanted more than just a general feeling about this trial, who wanted to experience it up close and personal. I thought I even saw my boss, Archangel Temuel, who us angelic grunts usually just called the mule, not too far away. The crowd of the saved jostling each other in the massive shining hall, despite being only semi-tangible, another heaven thing which doesn't really translate, began to murmur with anticipation as the jury appeared, a row of blooming angelic flames that represented the great and the good, in fact, some of the very greatest and goodest that our third sphere had to offer. I recognized them all. We are convened in the sight of the highest to do justice. These words came from the diamond-faceted white light that represented Terentia, a powerful angel who was acting as master of ceremonies. The other four heavenly judges, Karyle, Rezile, Anaita, and Camuel, watched silently from beside her, their flames lined up like a menorah on Hanukkah day five. 
God loves you all, Terentia added, then turned her attention to me. Angel Advocate Deloreal, you are accused of conspiring against heaven's laws. In addition to several crimes, you are also charged with the sins of wrath, pride, envy, and avarice, all most dreadful. If you are found guilty, you will be cast from heaven and into the unholy pit, there to dwell in suffering for eternity. Do you have any questions before we begin? So, yeah, the reason I had such a good seat was because I was the one on trial. And if you've got questions, believe me, so did I. Probably the same ones, in fact, beginning with, how did I get here? And how do I get out of here again? But for reasons I'll explain as I go, I didn't think it would do me any good to ask. Look, you've already decided what you're going to do, I said, with what I hope came off as a tough, cold-blooded calm I sure didn't feel. Let's cut to the chase, because we all know the fun part is going to be the sentencing. But wait, I hear you say, how did you wind up on trial in heaven, Bobby Dollar? How could such a, a thing happen to you, one of heaven's most beloved and respected angels? Oh yeah, that's hilarious. Kick a guy when he's on trial for his immortal soul just to get a cheap laugh, why don't you? You really want to know how I wound up here? I guess it started with a dream I had. Tad Williams is the author of the Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn series consisting of The Dragon Bone Chair and The Stone of Farewell, The War of the Flowers, Tail Chaser's Song, the Shadow March series consisting of Shadow March, Shadow Play, Shadow Rise, and Shadow Heart, the Bobby Dollar books, The Dirty Streets of Heaven, Happy Hour in Hell, his latest novel is Sleeping Late on Judgment Day. Thank you for joining me, Tad. Thank you. Tad, one of the things I think is so much fun about these books is the way you've managed to take really gnarly religious concepts and philosophical concepts and then just immediately translate them into plot points. And I think in the introduction you just read, you have a perfect example where you externalize a really abstract concept free will, and bring it down to the trial of an angel and then play that out through the book. I'd like you to talk about when you are like coming up with the plots of these books, do you think, okay, this is the religious dilemma I'm going to look at? I'm, you know, do you like mind St. Augustine for your plots? <laughs> I, I, I haven't ever actually literally mind St. Augustine, although now that you mention it, that's a darn good idea, and I really should be spending more time with him. Um, no, what tends to happen, um, I am by nature, I guess, uh, a sort of an uh, idiosyncratic type, which is I consider myself a writer of hard fantasy. Um, hard, in this sense, comes from the science fiction term, hard science fiction, which some readers may know or may not know, is basically the idea of science fiction books that are written with as much science as possible in them, that, that they take their concepts seriously, that it's not just Star Wars where it's like, oh, they have faster-than-light drives. No, hard science fiction readers want to know how do they work. 
Um, and in my, my case, with my fantasy, I, I like to add a certain amount of, of reality to it. I, I really wrestle with these things. We all want to believe in dragons, but I also then like to think, well, if we're going to have a dragon, how do they actually locomote? How do they, how do they eat? What do they do? What's their life cycle? You know, how many of them are there out there? Is it, how often do they breed? You know, I mean, I really worry about stuff like that. Well, obviously, when I was dealing with something like the Bobby Dollar books, I was literally playing with the, the cosmology of, you know, the whole Judeo-Christian tradition, um, some others as well, but I mean, that was the primary thing. And so my first thought is, again, kind of one of those hard science fiction, hard fantasy thoughts, how does it work? And inevitably, when one is trying to make a working model of something as largely uh, contradictory as any big religion, you know, any big, you know, uh, mythos, as it were, that, um, you know, there are going to be places where you have to actually make decisions and say, well, if it's going to do this, then it has to have some way of doing this. You know, if they're going to judge souls, then, then the souls have to have some existence separate from themselves, and there has to be a point at which they get judged, and there has to be blah, blah, blah. So this very long answer by saying, I don't set out to write religious themes, but by the very nature of, at least in these books, taking the religious themes seriously forces me to think about the actual nuts and bolts of how they might work. And as a result, I find myself face up against things like free will all the time. One of the things I really love in the, these books <clears throat> is the language. The prose, is. this is so much fun to read. These books are hysterical. I sit at the, this table and I read with my headphones on while my wife watches political TV and I try to keep my brain from exploding. <laughs> and and I, I'm just like cackling like a madman as I read these books. And I'm wondering, first off, uh, when you write these, do you say this stuff out loud? I mean, this seems like the, I can kind of see you doing the Robert E. Howard thing of typing and, and and speak. I, I don't, but only because I, I hear them in my head, in my own voice, almost as I'm doing. I mean, Bo Bobby Dollar, otherwise known as Deloreal, is probably the closest to my own voice of anything I've ever done. Um, and he is also the narrator, as people who uh, people saw from from the intro. Um, you know, he's the person speaking to the reader, and as a result, in many ways, it's probably the closest I've ever come to talking directly to readers. And people who know me in real life know that, um, you know, humor has always been a big part of what I do. It's how I deal with the world. You talk about politics. It's how I cope. You know, it's how I keep from, you know, shooting myself in the head when I look at some of the things that go on in this country and this world. So, um, you know, it's a huge part of who I am, but because in the past I'm usually writing these big epic fantasies with many different character voices, um, I don't tend to use humor as much. So it's very much a part of who I am, though, and it's a great sense of freedom when writing these books to be able to, to look at the modern world around me and respond the way I actually respond and then put it in the mouth of a character. So. What you're getting is probably a more unadulterated slice of my worldview than, than you would normally be subjected to. You know, it just struck me that uh, one way to describe these books would be George Carlin writes epic fantasy. 
there, there is a very Carlin-esque a- aspect, especially to Bobby, who if he's different than me in any particular way, he's more of a cynic, which I felt went with the kind of noir feeling of these books. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and Bobby himself mocks his own tendency. He, he loves noir. He sees himself as a noir character, even though he's an angel. He's an earthbound angel. Um, and he, he loves, you know, being, you know, one of those guys in the city who knows all the ins and outs and stuff. So, um, you know, it, 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 Carlin's cynicism very much is, is very similar to, to Bobby's. You know, one of the things, too, that interests me is the way that you draw the parallels. You were talking about writing hard fantasy. And, you know, there's this old saying, as, in, as above, so below, or, or as below, so above, is, which is, I think, what, what's happening here is you're creating a fantasy world that bears an uncomfortable, a fantasy of heaven that bears an uncomfortable uh, resemblance to uh, human reality. Well, I think any student of history will, will tell you that just because people are further up the ladder of power or knowledge or whatever does not necessarily make them... Um, more perfect than those who do not have those advantages. And in my version of heaven, and, I, and I'm sure for some readers, this would be an uncomfortable thing if they're more traditional in their, their beliefs and what they want from a story about Judeo-Christian, you know, uh, uh, ideas. Um, you know, that my angels are by no means perfect, although many of them are, are trying very hard. And uh, even Bobby is trying. I mean, he really is trying his best to do the right thing. And that's, of course, what interests me, whether it's an angel or a human, um, you know, or, or, or even a, a porcupine. You know, I don't care who it is as long as they're trying, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's all there. The angels and the, the heavenly hierarchy are just as confusing to Bobby as dealing with, you know, the, the various governments might have been for um, a spy during the Cold War. You know, which is is kind of thematically there, too. You just don't know who to trust. And on the one hand, yeah, if all the angels were perfect and all the demons were uniformly bad, it would be closer to some people's view of of the the religious, you know, uh, side of things. But it would make for some pretty boring stories. Well, that's one of the things I think is very interesting about uh, Bobby as a character is he is deeply cynical and he deeply distrusts everyone, even himself. And this leads him to uh, distrust all his friends on, on earth and in heaven and distrust the motives of everybody in heaven. And that makes for, does make for a darn good uh, mystery involving the uh, highest angels of heaven. Well, that's certainly one of the things, too, since um, this particular book, Sleeping Late on Judgment Day, is the third. It's not the last Bobby Dollar story ever or the last Bobby Dollar book, but it's the end of this first cycle of stories. Um, so a lot of things are wrapped up, a few other mysteries deepen, but, you know. But the one of the primary things about it is because a lot of these things are coming down to this very important, very dangerous struggle for him, is that he really does have to find out who is on his side. And in some cases, he can't know ahead of time, and he has to do something which is very difficult for him, which is to trust. Um, and again, we all feel that way sometimes, but he in particular has this situation where if you if you guess wrong, you don't merely get killed. You you go to hell. You know. You I mean you literally get punished for for an infinite amount of time, which is a a hell of a penalty. <laughs> 
I wish our listeners could see your eyebrows. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it just, it, it, excuse the expression, but it beats the hell out of third strike. You know, I mean, it's like, no, it's infinite strike. You're, you're gone, babe. Uh, at one point, Bobby says, I like people. See, I really do. I just don't like them much close up. <laughs> and I think that this is an interest, you know, this is a, a good, uh, a typical um, detective motif. But when you're translating into an angel and into the religious world, it gives you a lot more opportunity to play with the plot and to complicate your mystery plot with the um, fantastic aspects. Right. Well, he's also dealing on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, Bobby is an advocate. What that means is that he, he kind of is like a defense lawyer for the souls of the recently dead. But what that means is a lot of times, like any lawyer um, in, in, in the real world, he is arguing for people who... You know, they may not really be all that good. You know, they're human. They're flawed. But the people against him, the, the demons that are arguing that they should get to have that soul in hell, are arguing in behalf of these people being punished eternally, you know, burned, you know, drowned in liquid flaming feces for an eternity. You know, I mean, some really nasty stuff. And so he's, he's kind of going, well, I don't care how bad my client is. Nobody deserves that. So it, 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 it is a weird situation that, that he's put into. And um, as a result, it, it, it means in general, he, he's ambivalent about everything. I mean, it, it, one of the things about these books is that um, it wouldn't work for me if it was black and white, good and evil. It has to be gray. And, and like most of these kinds of characters, the noir characters, the the disillusioned detective, the the ex-cop, the you know whatever it might be, they live in a gray area because they they can't afford to ignore that. Everybody else can pretend it's black and white, but those kinds of protagonists have to live with with ambiguity. One of the things you do really well in these books is to develop all the side characters who make this genre so much fun. I mean. Holmes would be nothing without Watson and his and Moriarty and, and Moriarty and Moriarty and everybody else. So I'd like you to talk about uh, creating some of these other um, side characters. I, I really like through the course of the books. I think you know you've got three three novels here, and uh, through the course of the books, I've come to like Clarence. The I always think of him as Clarence the Cross-eyed Angel. <laughs> <laughs> that just speaks to my age. I was going to so. say we're dating ourselves on that reference, <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, well, that was actually one of, the, one of the really fun things about writing for me is not just writing protagonists, but it's creating worlds, and creating worlds includes creating characters. And one of the uh, wonderful, thing, uh, wonderful things about anything, like whether it's magic realism, whether it's this kind of what is currently being marketed as urban fantasy, whatever you want to call it, is it allows you real-world settings with these very unusual and interesting people. Because Bobby doesn't just hang around with angels. He has ex-demons for informants. He, he hangs around with ghosts. He hangs around with people who never died. You know, there are all kinds of strange folk. Clarence, as you mentioned, is actually um, a, a, another angel who has worked with him and has been a, a pretty major character in all these three books. Um, but uh, his real name is Harrison, but everybody at the, the angel bar where they all hang out immediately started calling him Clarence after It's a Wonderful Life, the angel who's trying desperately to get his wings and can't quite do things right. 
And of course, this doesn't necessarily identify who this guy really is. He's actually a more complicated character. He's not a bumbling idiot by any means. He's, he's quite an interesting guy. But it, 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 it also shows kind of, you know, how the, the kind of rough and tumble way these angels are on Earth. They all have these kind of Damon Runyon-esque nicknames and they're all kind of insulting each other all the time and they have this very knock-around kind of philosophy. So they're great fun to write, but then as I mentioned, there's all these other characters. There's a new mystery character in this one who we don't quite know who he is, um, but there's a number, that uh, which is Dr. Gustavus, but there's a number of other of the familiar faces from the earlier books who, like, there's, uh, you know, Orban, the guy who's kind of the gunsmith and all that. And um, you have, a, what's interesting too, is you have a really sweet scene with him. And th that's nice to kind of like, turn this whole idiom on its side once in a while. Well, yeah, and I mean, and that's, yeah, and that's also the whole point is if you can predict, if the reader can ever predict exactly what a character is going to do, you've essentially wasted however, however many pages are going to be in that scene because the reader can just skip right over that. They can just go, I know what's going to happen here. So one of the roles uh, a writer has, especially a writer of, of this kind of fiction, is to subvert expectation. And so every time, you know, I, I have a mental feeling that my readers are beginning to expect something, that's usually when I will try to pull the rug out just to remind them that um, I'm thinking too, <laughs> you know? And this is a little bit of a competition between the two of us, which is genre fiction. Most, most readers of genre fiction, I'm talking about crime, romance, science fiction, horror, whatever, you know, you want to, whatever is a, a, a genre. Most readers of genre fiction have literally read dozens, if not hundreds, of that kind of book. And they are extremely well-versed on the different tropes and, and, and things that the writers do. So they are playing a game with you. Genre readers are trying to outthink you. And as a writer, I relish that. Because, of course, just like in Tai Chi, as soon as somebody else is supplying some of the force, I don't have to always outmuscle them. I can simply step out of the way and trip them or whatever, you know. And that's very much what I'm trying to do as a writer. I always want the reader to think they've got me figured out and then surprise them so that they have to start over again. Well, you are talking about genres. Here you get to play with two or three genres at once. And... Uh, one of the things I was thinking, uh, you know, I think that people who read mysteries would love these novels, no matter how much they think they don't like fantasy or urban fantasy. And I think that's one of the things you've done very well is to really capture the fun of the mystery genre. Well, thank you. I, I One of the things that when I mentioned kind of thinking of myself as a hard fantasy writer, one of that, it, the difference between what I will term kind of sloppy fantasy or sloppy genre is where it doesn't it does not hew to its own internal rules and one of the reasons that crime fiction mystery fiction works is because the reader feels that I understand the world this is happening in I can think along with the main character and although my world is much stranger than the real world on the other hand it also has limitations and I do my best not to not to that's one way I don't trick the reader. I don't set up an explanation of how the world works and then suddenly throw it out when the time comes. If there's, you know, sort of non-physics ideas, and obviously when you're dealing with angels and demons and hell and heaven, there are going to be things that are not in Newtonian or even quantum physics. 
but I explain them as best I can so that the reader is operating with the same set of information that the main character is. Because I do want them to read like real crime fiction or mystery fiction. I do want the mysteries to be mysteries. I do want the clues to be in there for people to be able to solve them. So yes, I would love it if more crime and mystery people gave these a try because other than the strangeness of some of the situations, um, the fundamental exercise is very, very similar to straight crime fiction or straight mystery fiction. Well, too, this gives you the opportunity to do something really interesting with regards to the genres is that you get to set up two sets of rules. And, and you know, that that's kind of, that must be fun. It's like kind of building, it's like uh, 3D chess. A absolutely, and that's one of the things that uh, is always kind of fun for me about my writing is how much of, how much of what I do looks like I'm taking a nap. And, and yet <laughs> nobody can tell me I'm not working. Because I literally do, I mean, in part, just because I, I, I'm not comfortable sitting in chairs for long stretches, but um, I, I literally lie down and do this stuff in my head and will, play with the, it's even worse with the multi-volume books with 20-something focal point characters. With the Bobby books were comparatively simple. But, um, you know, I, I, that's what I do. I, I play 3D chess in my head all day um, against myself, basically, and against an imaginary set of readers. And it's, it's great fun. And it's an um, amazing mental exercise because literally you can do anything if you can make it work. That's the bottom line. If people believe it, if it works for the readers, doesn't matter what it is. And that's one of the reasons I love my genre. Well, two, you get this kind of an interesting uh, a 3D effect of satire in that on one hand you're using the mystery tropes to satirize the fantasy tropes, the fantasy tropes to satirize <laughs> the mystery tropes. You're, and at one point you have a character who says sarcasm is like training wheels for the humor impaired, which I think is <laughs> an absolutely great line. But you, it, points out that you're making fun of people making fun. Yeah. And yeah. that's really great. You're, you're, you're way too smart, Rick. You're, got, you're on top of all my little secrets here. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, these books are, are huge fun to write, and that's one of the main reasons is because literally I can do almost anything with them because it is contemporary fiction, so I can satirize the real world, but it's also, you know, the very heart of it is the essentially the... The, the, the biblical stories that, that our culture is based around, you know, and I can satirize those and play with those. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like letting an extremely badly behaved child go in, in you know, on a supermarket sweep and just say, go break anything you want to. We'll pay for it. You know, I mean, I, I can just run wild. Well, that's what makes these books so much fun because also, as readers, we can detect... Here is a writer who is just really rock and rolling, playing a ripping guitar solo all at once. I, I'm glad to hear it because that really is what, when it's going well for me, it feels like that. It feels like I'm sure having fun with this. I hope the readers are because I'm just enjoying the heck out of this particular exercise. Now, you mentioned a character, uh, a new character, who I really like, Dr. Gustavus. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is uh, somebody who should have been played by uh, Vincent Price, I think, yeah, in well, the movie version. <laughs> yeah, no, he's definitely, he's, he's one of these characters who, um, he's a mystery man. 
And uh, it's, I, I will tell people that it is not revealed in this book because this is the first time he's made an appearance. And I have a feeling he will come back into other Bobby stories later on. Um, so he remains a bit of a mystery as to who he is and what his interests are. But again, it's, it's, I, I have my ideas. Um, it's, it's something else I want to play with. Um, there are these characters that exist in this gray area that Bobby also inhabits where you literally don't know. And he says it himself. He does not know who some of these people really are because... They, or what they are. Or what they are, right. They could, they could be demons pretending to be on his side. They could be disaffected angels. They could be people that he knows and works with. They could be literally, as one character claims to be, people who just didn't die for various reasons, and so they're hundreds of years old. And they could be, you know, that, things that are even stranger. We have ghosts. There have been several ghost appearances in the stories. Um, so somebody like Dr. Gustavus, you just don't know. You have to, as a reader, you have to start knowing the, the books themselves well enough to start going, okay, well, he seems more like one of these kinds of guys than one of these kinds of guys. You know, he's, he's more tangible than the ghosts, <laughs> so maybe he's not a ghost, you know, and you just, that's all you can do is just play with the information. But I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed him, and there will be more of him. And when you were talking just then, it made me think of how much these novels do partake of the Cold War espionage novels in that because angels can wear different bodies, people can be angels, ghosts, demons, whatever, there's a whole layer of kind of espionage and uh, things not appearing what they, uh, being what they appear to be. Oh, absolutely. And when I was first, I actually, these, the, the idea for these books goes back into the 90s, I think. Um, I remember doing a, a, talking to a bunch of people at a homeschooling convention or conference and and showing them how ideas develop and telling them this is an idea I'm playing with and that was in the 90s and it was the this this idea long long before I ever thought of actually writing it and at the time the idea was very much um, that the analogy between the eternal conflict between heaven and hell and the the, the Cold War between you know America uh, or the West and, you know, the Soviet Union and, and their, their client states. And for very much that reason, I said, that seems to me like, you know, heaven and hell couldn't be an open, ongoing, dramatic, violent struggle. It would be more like the Cold War, where it would just go on and on and on, and eventually people would develop entire systems based around the very fact of stasis, of things not moving, um, and eternal enmity without ever coming to actual warfare. And... In the early stages, it was very much going to be more like a uh, John le Carré novel or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what happened is after thinking about it for a little while and experimenting just mostly in my head, I realized, no, I want to tell this story as the main character. And that begins to bring me more into noir territory. But that element is certainly still in the books because it is this kind of, you know, this, this frozen struggle between two sides. And... As with espionage, as with any good spy novel, the interesting thing is what happens in that no man's land between the two sides where people's uh, allegiance is questionable and their, their knowledge is for sale and all these things. And that's very much where, where Bobby lives. And also where your analog for one of our local software magnates lives on five page mill road 
<laughs> so uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Elagor, who is so much fun. Oh, you know, he, he when I first started the stories, I, for again, those who haven't read any of them, Elagor is a very, very powerful and important demon who Bobby gets on the wrong side of in the first book and then becomes a, a constant theme. I mean, he's there as a character in a number of ways, including not the most obvious ways. I don't want to give anything away, but his role is not always exactly what you'd expect. Um, but anyway, as with a lot of demons, because although as we show in, in part two, that there are sort of better places in hell where the really powerful demons live. The, even the better places are pretty unpleasant. <laughs> so a lot of the powerful demons actually have an entire earth life. And this particular demon, Elagor, um, actually has an entire earth life as a Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurial billionaire um, who is similar to a number of different people. Um, you know, I... I <laughs> I, I used to, for a while, I had Larry Ellison in my own family. So that was one person I had some experience with. But, but there are others that he is, and, and I do not think Larry Ellison is a demon from hell. But I did have firsthand um, contact with him because for a while there was a family connection. Um, but there are also a lot of others who are, who are similar too. And there's also aspects, he's a little Branson-esque as well too. Because mm -hmm. he's kind of a, you get the feeling he's kind of a swinging billionaire, you know, who has a <laughs> lot of fancy friends and probably, you know, yachts and planes and things like that. But he is also, you know, millions of years old and incredibly powerful and by our standards, absolutely evil. You know, I mean, in the sense that, that you're never going to dig down so far that you find, you know, the good side of Elagor. That there is no such thing. He is a force of evil, but he is a force of evil that occasionally will will you know make uh, adjustments um, in the short term that that maybe can be beneficial to somebody smart enough to work with them. So uh, so yeah, so kind of writing him as one of these untouchable corporate billionaires is was it was great fun because I was just thinking about like. Well, how would you just, if you wanted to, to meet, you know, Bill Gates or Larry Ellison or Steve Jobs when he was alive or one of these people, you know, how, how would you get in, presuming they were actually demons from hell, you know, and you had every moral right to bust in on them? How would you get in? You know, what, what, how would you get to see them and to confront them? So that's a big part of the first book. And some of that stuff comes back in the third book as well. You were talking about this being hard fantasy. And I think that one of the ways you make this live up to that description is by incorporating bits that seem like history, might be history, local history, world history, into this. For example, at one point, you talk about the gold rush of Barbary Coast. So talk a little bit about incorporating real history and which which bits you like to mine and, and how you decide where to pick and choose from. Well, to make this, this actually one that could turn into a very long answer, even by my standards. So I'll try and compress it here. That, that readers of the first or the first and second books already know that the stories take place in an imaginary city named San Judas, which is actually in the place that I grew up, which is sort of the suburboplex um, around Palo Alto and Stanford. And I also I lived love in, that word. I lived in Redwood <laughs> City for a long time as well. That's so where the, I was the born. Downtown, well, and the downtown there is actually the downtown. Of, the downtown of Redwood City is the downtown of San Judas. So when he talks about the Justice Hall, that's the same Justice Hall in the real world where the Patty Hearst trial was and the Scott, um, what's his name, who killed his wife trial and all of that stuff. Um, 
so these are real places, but because it's a city, I have grown them. I have presumed that San Jose never got, kind of never got started uh, or is a small town and that instead, you know, things like uh, gold mining and mining in the, um, in the Santa Cruz Mountains actually was a little more successful enough for the kind of city to get started. So all of these areas are now part of a, a, a big city. And as a result, the, the very nature of San Judas is that it's not real. But because I live here and I wanted to be able to work with things I knew, because I think the best noir takes place in cities, I also tried to make it as realistic as I could. So the neighborhoods are real, the roads are real, and much of the history is real. So when I'm talking about how Elagor first came to the Bay Area and I'm talking about the Barbary Coast and the Gold Rush and various things, um, that all happened. You know, when there's, a, you know, a, a, a hotel that doesn't exist in the real world, but it's named after a real gold rush, you know, robber baron guy um, and, and various things like that. So the, the, the real history of the San Francisco Bay Area and the, the Bobby Dollar history of the San Francisco Bay Area are, are inextricably linked. And there is much truth in it, but then there's also um, untruth in it. And... One of the fun things about that, I was just talking to a, a reader the other day who was telling me how much he enjoyed actually being able to, when he was trying to figure out where somebody was being chased in a car chase scene, that he could actually just get out the Thomas map for Redwood City or for Palo Alto or Sunnyvale or whatever and follow it because the streets were the same. You know, they, they still, many of them had the same names. Thomas map. Yeah. What is this thing of which you speak? You, no, yeah, just yeah, 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 yeah. You remember Thomas map. I had, I lived with one for several years when I had a driving job. But so there's a lot of stuff like that where that's another level of the game that I'm playing to amuse myself and hopefully amuse local readers is that they will see things and say, oh, wow, that's like the downtown, but now it's just like this weird little shopping center over by, you know, off Veterans Boulevard or something. Or, or they'll see another place up in the hills and they'll go, oh, my God, that's supposed to be, you know, such and such a part of San Carlos, you know, but since it's part of this larger city, it's got a slightly different name, but they'll, you know. So there's very much that aspect as well, that local people, that people who don't know the area won't impinge on their re enjoyment, I don't think, at all of the books. Um, uh, to the contrary, I think that it lends an authenticity to the narrative so that even if we don't know the places, they feel more real. Yeah. Well, and it certainly helps me in the sense of that I can actually think about, whereas if I was making a completely fictional city, you know, I, I, it would not be, I can actually like think about distances and how fast can you drive here without running over pedestrians and, and you know, what, how far is this to the freeway? How long would it take you in rush hour traffic? And so I, I'm working with real places that I know and that also adds to the sort of nitty gritty side of it. Now, on the other hand, you have to deal with, you're dealing with the real world and the unreal world. And there's some nice plays between real world power and unreal world power. Some of these people, these beings are, you know, they're pretty powerful on earth. They're insanely powerful in the other world, or maybe they're not so insanely powerful. They can just change appearance and kind of show up as a grumpy cab driver. <laughs> well, and that's another thing that, that um, talking about the sort of hard fantasy is that I try to sort of establish rules in part by 
you know, obviously Bob Bobby Dollar is the narrator, Deloreal, he's the narrator, and he will actually sometimes say, this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. But there are other times by his confusion or surprise where you will understand without necessarily being directly told that something is, he it doesn't make sense as he understands the world. Because we are dealing with essentially science fictional and fantasy concepts. I mean, if you, you know, an angel, especially a high ranked angel is going to be a very powerful being um, who presumably in some ways lives outside of time or space-time as we understand it. So how do you limit that character? Why can't that character simply just fix things? You know, if like they don't like it, why don't they just reach down and change reality? Or why don't they just go back in time? And you know, I mean, so if you're going to create incredibly powerful characters like angel angels and, and powerful demons, you also have to create a system that the reader can understand that explains why they can't do certain things. So again, it's that kind of high, um, that kind of hard fantasy trope of trying to make a system that the reader can understand so they never feel you're just pulling something out of your back pocket at the last moment and going, and then he turns on his repulsor rays, you know, or his secret force field, or, you know, the kind of things we used to do when we were kids playing superheroes, you know. I totally have a blaster in my glove, you know, and so it's always got to feel like a good crime novel, that even though some of the characters may have machine guns or bombs, that it's it's just like the real world, you know, they, they do this, this is what you could do to combat them, you know. It's all about making the reader feel that they can understand the 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 scope and the 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 uh, the dangers without feeling that you know he's just making stuff up that the you know anything could happen so why should I worry I know he's going to get out of it I always try and put my I oftentimes actually this is an interesting thing I don't know if other reader, writers do this as well but I will oftentimes put my characters in situations for which I have not yet thought of a way to get out. It seems that way sometimes when you read it. And that yeah. gives a lot of tension to the book. Well, I'm gonna, just going, oh, how the hell is he going to get this guy out of this? <laughs> Believe me, I'm feeling that tension too. And that's one of the reasons I do it is because, you know, it will seem obvious to me like if I were a bad guy and I had a hold of this guy, I would do X. You know, I wouldn't, you know, why would I, you know, the, the eternal old question, why do these people always torture James Bond and not just shoot him in the head and be done with it, right? Um, and... Uh, you, which I don't know if you saw the Austin Powers movies, but there's a great thing in the, one of the Austin mm -hmm. Powers movies where Dr. Evil's son is arguing with his dad, and his dad's going, no, 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 we're going to put them in the pit with the dolphins, with the lasers on their head, and then we're going to go away and trust that everything is going to... And he's going, no, look, Dad, Dad, look, I'll just shoot him now. I'll shoot him now. You know, and Dr. Evil's going, no, son, you don't understand. Um, and uh, so when these things come up in books, you know, again... Readers have seen these things hundreds of times. You have to make sense out of why they happen the way they happen. And one of the ways I can do that is by putting my characters in these insane situations that I don't have a way to think out of. And I almost always eventually come up with something. You know, I don't go back and then make the situation different. You know, I actually literally say, okay, given the, the rules of this universe, how the <laughs> hell are you going to get your character out of this? And I do think sometimes that that tension shows up, that panic uh, that I'm feeling as I'm writing it. And, um, you know, I think it's a good thing. It is. You know, you were talking about the immortal powers, and I think one of the things you've done very well is to uh, take a page from Lovecraft. And one of the things I think that Lovecraft did really well 
not maybe the greatest writer or plotter, but his concepts were were unparalleled in, in being very smart. And he created a science fiction version of kind of fantasy things. And I think that your um, angels and demons all partake of that kind of same um, real beings outside of space and time as mm. we know it. Mm. I, very much. I mean, I, I, and I do that in all my fantasy, to be honest with you. Um, it's it, because, again, the only certain um, uh, feedback that I have, the only person who is with me as I am writing who can give me feedback is myself. And so I have to write things that I can believe, you know, obviously within the suspended disbelief of a fictional world, you know, I mean, I don't actually believe these things, but I can, when I'm writing them, I have to write them in such a way that they feel real to me. And that means they have to have, even in fantasy, my fantasy, I cannot have monsters that I can't make sense out of how they would survive when they're not attacking the protagonists. You know, I have to understand what those things do, how they move, what they eat, how they reproduce, you know, I mean, there will come a time when I will stop going into detail, but, you know, when I'm inventing them, I'm definitely thinking those kinds of things because that's who I am, that's the modern world I live in. I want to feel there's some physical reality to these magical, crazy things. And very much of the Bobby Dollar things, he's living in a real city, albeit fictional, um, made up, but he's living in a real place with cars and people having jobs and streetlights and, you know, potholes and all the things that are there. And so as a result, the things he's fighting with or being chased by or trying to outwit have to feel like they could live in that world, even if they're only there temporarily, even if they've just kind of been summoned. And there's a number of ways to do that. And one of them is to give great physical reality to their physical presence and explain how they physically interact with the world. But there's also the idea of also not over-explaining certain things. Mm -hmm. And that's, exactly. always, that's always crucial in fantasy. Talking about summoning. Uh, I'm a monster guy. <laughs> I mean, my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wonderful movie. And I think that uh, you take a few pages from that, but I mean, that you just do great monsters, and thank you for doing them. Well, thank you. I, I love monsters, and, you know, but for me, the monsters that work are the monsters that, you know, it's like, I love mummies, but... I, I always found it difficult to go, I really can't believe that nobody can beat that mummy, you know, because the guy is just limping along about two miles an hour. Well, he's only got one arm because the other arm is like permanently stuck to his waist like he's got his, you know, his watch band caught in his bandages or something, you know, and he's creeping along. And I'm going like, hit him with a shovel, you know, uh, you know, squirt him with some, some, you know, charcoal starter fluid or something and light him on fire. I mean, what, what's the problem? It's a mummy, you know, he's, he's slower than my grandmother. Whereas, you know, if, if I were going to make mummies in a, in a thing, I would try and immediately think, how do we make that better? How do we do that? You know, well, then let's think about, we'll do the Tolkien route, where the paralyzing terror of them, like Tolkien's Nazgul, is such that you can't run away. It's like a living nightmare. But you got to make that part of the story, right? Either that or you got to have really fast mummies. And that's a whole other issue. You know, how do you make a fast <laughs> mummy? So these are the kind of things I think about, because I love monsters too, but... I'm not scared of them unless I can believe, at least temporarily, that they could exist. Now, uh, you have a lot, a lot of fun with your language in this. 
And one of the things you do is you have the, these kind of scenes where you'll have, you're absolutely parsing two very different uh, forms. Like in, in this paragraph we write, neo-Nazis sending headless spiders with children's hands after me, angels who were ancient goddesses and still the subject of grudges thousands of years old, real live Amazons. I mean, if weird was money, I'd be Bobby Million Bucks, not just plain old Bob Dollars. <laughs> I think this is a great, this is like your cranky old detective in a whole new world. Well, that's part of it. And then also there, because again, I'm always trying to walk this line between the fantastical world and the real world, there also have to be point because Bobby, even though he's an angel, you know, even though he's, he's technically not a human, normal human being in any way, shape or form, he is still the everyman of the story. So every now and then as a narrator, he has to say, yeah, this stuff is crazy, you know? I mean, I can't believe this stuff is happening, even to me. And because every now and then the reader will be presumably saying this, like, oh my God, this is over the top. Now this, now this, you know? And Bobby is the reader's voice in some senses. He is the, you know, the, the voice of the person who's also standing apart from the action as well as being in the middle of it. So sometimes he's just doing what, what I would do as, as a reader or what I am doing as the writer, which is to go, you're right, this is nuts. And here's how nuts it is that even the main character who's been through all of this stuff and is always going through stuff like that is going like, this is the worst yet. So there's also that kind of thing in which I'm saying to the, the reader, yeah, it's crazy. I agree with you. You know, it's not just you. Uh, in that clip I just read from, I mentions a couple of new characters who are super charming. And thank you for bringing in these new characters in, in this book. And there's, there's three or four of them. And so I'd like you to talk about, you know, you've got your stable from before, and now you think you want to put some new blood in. Talk about just in putting uh, new blood in your series. Wait, are you talking about the spider things with the children's hands? Uh, no, no, I was talking about the uh, the uh, your Ukrainian. Uh, oh, 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 yes, the the, the Skitians, as they would say, Skitians. Um, yeah, they're, they're uh, what, what we would now call Scythians, um, or in fact, as they're oftentimes referred to, uh, the Amazons. And interestingly enough, there's, these are characters in the book, um, specifically two young women, although they're part of a larger group. And interestingly, uh, there was nothing very much going on in the Ukraine when I first started writing this story. So it was kind mm -hmm. of a shock to me when Ukraine wound up in the news just as I was finishing the book. And I was... As usual, I was, part of me was grumpily thinking, oh, people are going to think I just like went over Ukraine and stuck it in my book. Um, but actually, they're based on a real group of people. There is a real group of people um, who, were, uh, who are, as far as I know, still exist, who do, uh, you know, they have like camps out in the wilderness and they, they call themselves uh, Amazons or, or uh, Scythians. And based on the old warrior culture that did exist where um, women in the Eurasian plains in that part of Russia and the related countries um, back 2,500 years ago did fight alongside men. And there is this modern day group of women who, get, who have gotten together. They're big fans of uh, Yulia, is it Timoshenko? Anyway, who is one of the leading uh, politicians in, in the Ukraine. Um, but more importantly, they like practice all these martial arts and they have this very much, you know, women, we don't need men thing. It's, it's not a gay thing particularly. It's much more just about women 
um, you know, the, the, in this particular Eastern European society who can be without men um, and, and, and protect themselves and all this. So this is based on a real group. And um, I ran across an article many years ago about them and thought they were fascinating. And when I decided I wanted to have some new people for Bobby to run around with, um, there was a long connection between them and the Persians. They were overrun and beaten by the Persians, and many of them were hauled into slavery. So I said, well, since one of my main characters in terms of bad guys in this volume is someone who was once a Persian goddess, okay, that's where I could use my Ukrainians. And it kind of went from there, and they be the Amazons became quite major characters. Um, and I hope interesting, you know, beyond simply their role in the plot as well. I know, I thought they were fascinating. Um, now, this novel isn't the only new Bobby Dollar novel. You have something new as well. And this is something we've never seen from you before, isn't it? Yes, at this very, very moment, actually. Um, it's it's already technically been uh, launched. We uh, I wrote a Christmas story. <laughs> it makes me laugh even to say it because it is the bloodiest, nastiest Christmas story probably that anybody ever wrote um, called God Rest Ye Merry Gentle Pig, in which, among other things, one of Bobby's other Long-time supporting characters, uh, George Noseda, the were-pig, um, is a major player. Um, but uh, it, also, it also has Nazi Santa Claus in it and various werewolves and all kinds of other stuff. And a ton of brutal, bloody, nasty stuff. And plus some sarcasm about Christmas, which is, you know, also... Uh, a part of any tad kind of approach to, to the world. Uh, because I've hit that point in my life where Christmas is something that I, I, I have to say now, um, especially now my kids aren't little kids anymore when it was still charming. But now I'm just like, oh my God, Christmas is coming, you know? And I feel like one of those people feels who lives at the bottom of a big snowy mountain as they hear the avalanche noises up the slope, you know? It's like, oh my God, it's gonna kill us this time for sure. Not a big Christmas fan. Hmm. So anyway, getting mad. <laughs> getting mad. No, I love the spirit of the thing, but it's the it's the actual like the nuts and bolts of making sure everybody's got their presents and stuff is just uh... anyway. So so God rest you, merry gentle pig is a Christmas story, and for those out there who might be worried from what I've just said, it is not entirely an anti-Christmas story. It has uh, an emotional pro. Christmas message in it as well. But it was great fun to write, and um, currently it's available through the Kindle program. I don't know what else we're going to do, but right now if you just go to Amazon, um, and the simplest thing to do, and probably the only person who will ever make this suggestion to you, just go to Google and Google Gentle Pig, one word. Um, and, uh, and, and Amazon, and you will get the page that shows how to get it. It's a, it's a novella. It's quite a long short story. It's probably about 50 pages worth of short story, and it's really uh, like a mini Bobby Dollar novel. So that's one thing. God rest ye merry gentle pig. Um, and then also I'm planning to write another Bobby Dollar novel, maybe using the same approach, maybe actually publishing it ourselves. And I've already got a title for that in my mind, and it's just a question of when I have space between... The Ostinard books, the, the big epic fantasy sequel that I'm also writing. So talk about coming back to that world again. That must have been somewhat daunting, as not only for you as a writer for having left them, but also because the world of fantasy has been changed by these giant success of the screen adaptations of George R. R. Martin and J.R. Right. Tolkien. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and... 
And those are two very important things in, in completely opposite ways. Uh, I was very influenced by Tolkien, of course, and especially the depth of Tolkien's, Tolkien's word, world creation. But then um, George's books were in part influenced by mine, as he's been kind enough to say many times. Um, he was... He kind of said something to the effect of like, well, I, I didn't know there was anybody doing anything interesting in this area until I read the, the Dragonbone Chair books. And um, so it was, it was, you know, very, very kind of him to say that. And, uh, but it was all what really got, I always said, I don't ever want to write sequels unless I, a story comes first. Story must come first. Otherwise, it's a franchise. You know, otherwise mm. you're saying... No, not I have a great new recipe and I want to share it with the public, but you know, everybody will come to the Golden Arches because they already recognize the McDonald's logo. I did not want to write an Ostenard book simply with the hope that people would go, oh, another Ostenard book. I wanted to wait until I had something that would be the story that I wanted to write because these things take years, these big multi-volume things. And then one day I simply, my, my wife said something about it, my wife Deborah, with whom you know, pretty much all of my work is shared, um, said something about, well, why couldn't you? And I said, well, because I don't have any ideas. And she said, I can't believe you don't have any ideas. Um, and so I was sitting around within the next 24 hours and thinking about it and thinking, well, what would I write about some of this? I mean, you know, it's been 30 years since I wrote those books. And I suddenly thought, you know what they don't usually do in any of these big epic fantasy things, um, or even science fiction much, but especially not epic fantasies, is they very seldom go back to these characters after the happily ever after. So what if I go back to the same characters, the protagonists who were teenagers at the end of the, the, the first story, the first multi-volume story, now they're middle-aged, you know? They've been married, right? That was like one of the big things that happens at the end of the book as they finally admit their, their feelings for each other. But there's a big difference between, you know, that young teenagers discovering that they love each other and the same people 30, 35 years on. Um, and all the other characters, who's still alive, who's dead. And more than that, how have they ruled? You know, these are all just kind of became kind of things I was interested in. And then out of that, and I don't want to give anything away, but then the actual story motor of what would be happening that would make this an interesting place to be. Um, came up and I went, oh, so not only do I have a story, but now I also have something that fascinates me personally because I'm older now too. I am these people. I have raised children and I have, you know, looked at a career now from 30 years in, like ruling a country or something. You know, it looks a lot different when you first start it and then when you've actually done it for a long time, as these characters have, you know, you have a completely different feeling. So all of that stuff kind of came together and it's been. It's been fascinating. I mean, we don't have really have time to talk about it now. Maybe we can do this again when we're closer to the actual book because it's it's really interesting, not just for me personally, but in terms of all the tropes of epic fantasy and all of the things that George has done and other writers have done. Um, I, I'll give you one very brief example. I realized that unlike most other writers of fantasy and science fiction that I know, one of my basic themes, and it'll sound really simplistic and silly, but it's true, one of my basic themes is about kindness. It, how that exists, you know, altruism and doing things for others and how that operates in our species as a whole and in civilizations and cultures. 
you never see anybody talking about that stuff. And I found that really interesting. I didn't think about it ahead of time. I just realized that's something that comes up a lot in my work. So it's brought me face to face with a lot of stuff. I love to talk about it at more, more length when there's something for you to read and you can see some of what I'm, what I'm interested in. I look forward to that. And I've been speaking with Tad Williams. His new novel is Sleeping Late on Judgment Day. His new Bobby Dollar novella is God Rest Ye Merry Gentle Pig. Just search for Gentle Pig in your favorite search engine. <laughs> there's not going to be a whole, especially if it's one word, there's not going to be a whole lot of uses of Gentle Pig. Thank you for joining me, Dad. Thank you, as always, for the wonderful questions, and uh, it's a real pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.